Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December 11, 2014. This is episode 1482 of the Survival Podcast. And I have a special guest with us today, expert council member on investing and wealth building and all things financial, John Pugliano is going to be on with us talking today about setting up a business. Building a small business is a way to accumulate wealth, how to fund it, how to get started, how to figure out what you want to do, follow your passion, all that good stuff. I'll have John on in just a bit. Before we do, let us take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is HarvestEating.com. Harvest Eating is a great place to learn how to cook seasonally and locally from expert council member Chef Keith Snow. He has great seasonings, great stuff there, man. Just check out all of the great things in his shop. Check out his podcast, his YouTube channel, and his blog. And if you don't think cooking is a prepper skill, well, try living on MREs for six months. You'll change your mind really Really fast. Next up today, herbs of a different kind, Western Botanicals, where I go for all my medicinal herbs. If it's legal and herbal, you'll find it at Western Botanicals. The other thing you'll find at Western Botanicals are real people that really care about you, that will answer the phone and help you figure out what you need for your life. Including if you say, well, I'm dealing with so-and-so and such-and-such, saying, well, maybe you need to go see a doctor. Because they do not promise miracle cures. What they do is promise to, t to help you find the best herbal supplements and, and raw herbs for your needs. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Remember, Western Botanicals and Harvest Eating both do big discounts for members of my support brigade. Those are just another reason to join. If you join the MSB, you'll help support the show at 18.3 cents per episode. And you'll get a lot of great content that's available nowhere else. You get almost $200 worth of free ebooks on the day that you join. And you'll get discounts to over 60 companies now. Those discounts are probably things that you're buying anyway. Use those discounts and your membership will more than pay for itself. I've tried to make the MSB a great value and that it is actually profitable for members. And I think I've done just that. If you buy stuff from gardens to guns and everything in between, tactical to practical, you'll find the MSB will pay for itself. And you'll know you're helping continue the work that I do here at the survivalpodcast.com. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, you do uh, qualify for an additional discount. Just email me before, not after you join. Put service discount in the subject line, and I shall get back to you with a discount code to save you even more money on an already great value. And with that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1482. 1492. We're getting close to that one, aren't we? Everybody knows that year. 1482, what was going on? Well, I have St. George and the Mine and the Price of Milk. St. George of the Mine and the Price of Milk. The Tower and the Search for the Northwest Passage. And Euclid's Elements in Print. These are all good, but I'm going to read St. George of the Mine and the Price of Milk. Elmina Castle, or St. George of the Mine, is built this year in what is now called Ghana. Ghana is still remembered as the Gold Coast for a reason. The Portuguese landed there in 1471 and returned with gold dust. The locals worked several mines nearby. The castle is built this year, first as a trading post for gold and ivory, and later for trading slaves. A fort will be built to defend the castle and more easily from raids. The Dutch will take over the castle and the slave trade in the 1637. By the 1700s, about 30,000 slaves will pass through Elmina Castle each year. 
My take by Alex Shrug. The Age of Discovery is a very pretty name for the good and the bad. Some of it very bad. Henry the Navigator sought a route around Africa to Asia after the collapse of the Silk Road. In that process, they enslaved people for cheap labor. The Black Death had caused labor costs to skyrocket and brought slavery, which is a high-maintenance cost, within economic reach. High prices often cause strange and sometimes illegal alternatives to become economically viable. High oil prices make alternative fuels and the modifications required to use them economically reasonable. As oil prices drop, the use of alternative fuels will drop. The same is true of food prices such as the price of milk. A few years ago, milk prices dropped so low that European milk farmers threw away their milk because they couldn't sell the milk for enough money to cover the costs of bringing the milk to market. Uh, there's a piece of the slave trade in there that I don't think people realize and, until you hear it from an actual segment, that prior to the Black Death and the, the loss of manpower, slavery had become economically unviable. You think, well, how can that be? I mean, I have somebody, I own them, they work. They do whatever I tell them to. If they don't, I beat them, I punish them, and I make them work. And if they try to leave, I don't let them leave. And I just that's it. Well, I have to feed them. Okay, and you have to actually feed them somewhat decent if you want work out of them. And you have to put, you know, a roof over their head. I'm not saying it's benevolent at all. Don't don't mischaracterize it. I'm talking about it purely from the evil eye of economics. That actually ownership of another human being is very expensive. You have to see to their housing, their food, their health, and you have to see to that even when they're in a non-productive time. You can't lay them off. If you lay them off, in other words, don't feed them, don't house them, don't clothe them in the winter when you don't really need them doing very much, they're dead by spring and you don't have a workforce anymore. Now, again, this is not to minimize the concept of slavery. It's to make you realize what modern slavery is. Modern slavery is far more economically value, uh, viable for your slave masters. Your slave masters now use money and the concept of a 40-hour work week being a great thing and that debt is good, and that you should obey your masters and do as you're told and conform to systems that society has laid out for you is a modern form of slavery. And this way you can have all kinds of people working for you, and when you don't need as many as you used to need, you just do what's called a layoff or you fire some people. You can tempt them with pretty plastic cars to buy pretty plastic things and put them into mountains of debt, and then they have to work inside your machine forever. Unlike the slave master who had one plantation, we now have what you would call an oligarchy that views the entire nation as one giant plantation. They don't care if you're black, white, green, or yellow, or fuchsia. They just care that you're part of their system and that you're part of the control mechanism. You can be on the, on the, on the side of sucking the government tit. You can be on the, the side of producing. You can be on the side of providing labor, or you can be on the side of causing labor. They do not care. What they care about now is that their slaves seem see to their own housing, see to their own food, see to their own health care. All in their system that's designed to give them as much control as possible over as many people as possible. That's my take by Jack Spierko. I know it's hard to hear that you live in a world of economic slavery. The good news, it's a chosen form of slavery. It's not one you have to engage in. It's certainly not one you have to engage in as fully as some choose to. And please, when somebody points it out, don't polish your chains and scream at them. Cast your chains off and declare your own freedom. And one way we can do that is actually by understanding the system we're in, 
and building wealth for ourselves and doing so with value creation, which is what I talked about yesterday with a nursery business. Today, John Pugliano is on to talk with us all about wealth creation through value creation, through understanding the harnessing of the energy that is money in the form of small businesses. And I believe it is the number one way that people can become wealthy in America today. It is one of the few things that we really still have an advantage over most nations with. Uh, I get tough on this nation sometimes because I love what it's supposed to be, not because I hate it, because I love what it's supposed to be and I hate what it's becoming. But I will point out where we are better than others. And when it comes to the ability to just say, you know what, I'm going to build something for myself, we can do that here. Now, there's places where what you want to do is difficult. We also have something else here that many other nations don't really have to the level we do, freedom of movement. Because we still are a republic, Many times the onerous regulations that prevent you from doing what you want to do do not exist as few as a dozen miles away. And if it's necessary to move a dozen miles to found a business that you love and you're passionate about and you won't do it, think back to St. George of the Mine and the price of milk. And understand that the sacrifices that people made at one time are so much greater than the sacrifice of renting a truck and making some new friends. And with that in mind, I want to say, hey, John, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, thanks. Uh, always a pleasure to be on the show. Hey, John, you are part of our expert council. You've been on the show a bunch of times, so a lot of people know who you are, but we get new people all the time, or maybe they just haven't heard one of your past episodes. So could you give people kind of the background to who the heck is John Pugliano when it comes to money and business? Why the heck should anybody listen to him? Sure thing. Well, uh, I'll tell you, just... Uh, Mine and your. I was talking to somebody last night. That's a, a. I was at an event and I met someone. They came up and said, "Hey, I'm a TSP," and we started talking and said, "You know, your background's a, a lot like Jack's." I said, "Yeah, he, he's a lot smarter than I am, but we do have similar backgrounds." So, I mean, <laughs> we we both grew up in Pennsylvania. I was in Western Pennsylvania. I think you were in Central Pennsylvania. Uh, grandparents. One of them was an immigrant. One was a coal miner. One was a railroader. Um, I always had kind of a, un, unlike most people. I think I always had a prepper instinct, and I'll tell you why in here in a second. But, but even with that, as I've gotten older, I think like many people my age, I'm, I'm coming back around. I take a meandering path, and I kind of got away from some of my roots. And as I've gotten older, I'm coming back, and that's in particular to, to more of the permaculture things, which, uh, which has just developed over the last few years since I've been listening to you. But I had always been a prepper, and I think the reason for that is that my father passed away. He died when he was like 31, 30. So it was shortly after I was born. And so that was kind of always instilled in me that, you know, the unexpected can happen. And I kind of always grew up with that, you know, shadowing my, my thoughts. Um, as a result of that, though, my male role, role models were my grandfathers. So, you know, the, these old uh, uh, hardworking coal miners, railroaders, those, those were the people I spent a lot of my youth with, them and their friends. And wh although I was raised in the 60s and 70s, I really grew up with that the ethics of like the 1930s and 40s, you know, these, I, I con constantly heard the old stories about World War One, World War Two, the Depression, you know, and these guys just, they lived and breathed self-sufficiency, uh, work hard, you only buy things if you have cash. So, you know, I grew up with that in my background. In the late 70s, uh, as when I graduated from high school, Western Pennsylvania was in a real economic slowdown in those days. It's when the mills and things were all shutting down. So I wanted to do nothing more than get out of Pennsylvania. And I, I joined the military. I joined the Marines. Uh, eventually ended up spending seven years on active duty, uh, split between the Marine Corps, and I went in the Army as an officer later on. But I picked up a couple degrees, got educated. Uh, I was always very interested in 
in, in freedom as well. My, my freedom and my liberty were always very interesting to me or, you know, things that I wanted to pursue more so than money. I, you know, a lot of the jobs and things I took, I took because they paid well, but they also gave me a lot of freedom and, you know, creativity to do the things I like to do. And that's why I gravitated towards sales. And again, I think our, our backgrounds are tracking here for people that know your background, military, going into sales and things. But going into this, selling was a place where I could make a lot of money. I had a lot of freedom. Uh, but I was in that corporate America environment because I just thought that to make money, to be successful, you had to be white collar corporate America. That was a thing to do. And I was about in my late or I was in my mid, my mid 30s before I really realized that uh, that isn't necessarily the case. In fact, a lot of people make money from small business. That's really uh, the predominant way that the middle class builds their wealth. And um, I was kind of stuck in the matrix at the time. I had a wife and a lot of kids, a mortgage, all those kind of things. Uh, but I began working on turning my hobby into something that gave me cash flow and then that kind of into a small business. And then over the years now, that's blossomed into where I have my own financial advising business, uh, where I'm actually a money manager. It's an independent firm. I, I trade my own money as well as client money. And, uh, and that really came about because of you know, my commitment to wanting to have my own firm and, and realizing that I didn't fit in corporate America and that there were a lot of ways in this world to make money. Um, I do want to kind of jump on that permaculture thing and come back to that, though. So I, I found out about TSP uh, about it was it was about three years ago, sometime in in 2011, and I, I had heard about you guys because of prepping. Somehow I, I found out about it, and that's what originally drew me in. But as you talk more and more about permaculture, I so I, my perception of permaculture was like many people. I thought it was like hippies dancing in the mud kind of thing. And as you talk more about it, it really rang true to me, and that's what really took me back to my roots. I thought. A lot about what my grandfather had done. Uh, today we would call him like a, a gorilla gardener. Uh, he had a food forest and a huge garden, but it was something that he took over. He, he, he was very poor. Um, he lived in a very undesirable part, kind of between the railroad tracks and the slag dumps. Is the only house that he could afford when he was a, an immigrant trying to set up his family. And, and he lived there for, I don't know, 60 years. So every year he like he just. Um, encroached on the area around him and there was no one there to really no one really wanted it so you know by the time he died he was 96 he had 60 years of of um of building this place so he had a food forest he had you know all the things that we talk about in permaculture i saw my grandfather do and um that's when i kind of realized how far i'd gotten away from things and how little i learned from him although i had thought i learned a lot i really didn't learn a lot and so that's drawn me back into permaculture over the years, uh, you know, you've introduced me to things like, you know, Jeff Lott and Mark Shepard, Joel Sal, and I read all their works, went out to Permaculture uh, Voices, you know, last year and um, got to meet some of those guys. Um, found I'm a founding member of Perma Ethos, working on my PDC through Perma Ethos. And, and I don't plan to be a gardener. That's not my thing. I just think it helps me as a person. I think it adds to the lifestyle that I'm trying to create with my business. And um, so I guess in a nutshell, why people want to listen to, to what you and I are going to talk about today. I, I've lived what a lot of people are going through. I've come back to my roots and I'm trying to work through those permaculture principles, permaculture ethics. And then what I know about how to make money through small business to have a have a lifestyle that I want to pass on for, you know, me and my kids. Very cool, man. So the big thing we want to have you on today to talk about is. Uh, small business concepts, and I know that you're inundated with the same thing I am. What kind of business can I start? And I don't know about you, but I always kind of do this internally. I may not let the person hear it or see it when they ask that, but it's just kind of like, oh, because it's almost like, okay, we have to go 
all the way back and just start out with what is a business? Why should you be in business? Like giving somebody a business they can start when they're asking that question is probably the worst thing that you can do because they're focused on the, the, the what instead of the how and the why, right? And, and with that in mind, can we just kind of start off with the why? Your contention is because most of the people that you work with that have money, uh, and you, as a financial advisor, you really want – like if I came to you and said, John, I got $10,000 to invest, you might be like, here's my blog, here's whatever. I, you're not taking me as a client. Right. Uh, I've got to have something to work with for you, for you to take me as an investor the way that you work with investors. So that means you're working with people with money. And most of the people that you work with that have money – have small businesses. So yep. if somebody wants money, right, that's part of why you would send them in that direction, right? Right. People that are in their 50s and 60s that have a great deal of money are people that started small businesses when they were in their 20s and 30s. So once they've built that and they've, they've got that income stream, they've got that money, then they're looking to diversify. Then they go into stocks. They go into real estate. But they make that money in small business. Absolutely. So – when you, when you're looking to start a business, what are some of your pieces of advice? You talk a lot about things like mentors. Yeah, um, I think when you know, to your point too about when people always ask you know what kind of business should I start, we can't tell people what they should start, and that would really defeat the whole purpose because they should really be starting something that's unique for them. Um, so what I tell people is rather than like you said focusing on the what, go out and 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 look at developing thinking skills. Think think for yourself and and work with somebody that's already done it. There's a lot of, uh, in, in our society, we tend to discount older people, but there's a lot of older people that have been there before you. They may not be as savvy on the internet. They may not be the right people to talk to if you want to you know, start a, a podcast or something like that. But just in terms of core businesses, knowing what sells, what doesn't sell, uh, you know, who's a good attorney to use, just, just all aspects of business, maybe other than high tech, Go find a mentor, uh, particularly an older person. It could be a man or a woman, and, and don't just get one. And in fact, you may have to talk to you know ten or twenty people to find one good one that works for you. But uh, get as many people as you can. You know, some people call this like a mastermind group. I don't think of it anything as formal as that. I just I just encourage people to go out and talk to people in the community, particularly those older men and women that have been there before you and done it. I like to say, take a millionaire to lunch. You know, find a find an old guy that's done something. And um, and go buy him lunch. Sit down with him. Pick his brain. It may, you may just get a good referral as to what CPA you should use or how he does his taxes or something. Or he may just have a great idea and say, hey, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. And if this, and if this business was done this, this way, a, a young guy like you coming in could really make a difference. Those people want to talk. Generally, once you find them, um, they're, they're a huge asset. Yeah, definitely. I think, first of all, just as an aside, you used to take it all got to lunch, right? So it made me think of this thing that I know is it maybe not the best health advice, but I know it, it fits in with some of the, the advice that you give on funding, which is cut your consumption. I was watching one of these mindless talk shows that my wife freaking watches because I work from home and you walk through the living room and occasionally something's on. I don't remember who it was. I don't remember if it was, it was a few years ago, so it might have been Oprah when she was still around or whatever, but... They had people on that were like your millionaire next door guys. And this one guy, he looked like he was about in his 40s, probably you know somewhere in our, our generation, John. And he was giving some advice. And one of the things he says is, you know, and I, I often uh, shop at, at, at discount stores like Costco and buy in bulk. 
And when I'm there, I usually avail myself of lunch because I can buy their hot dog and a drink for $1.50 or something like that, right? And this lady in the audience made some kind of a smart remark about, I'm not eating lunch at Costco. And he said, well, that's why I'm sitting here and you're sitting there. Yep. That, 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 and, that, that's so true. So when it comes to funding, with, with that in mind, are there some ways you can think of like, – because you know, starting up a business doesn't have to cost a fortune, but usually it costs something. And it also often involves walking away from a paycheck or cutting back your hours in some way. It may not cost directly out of pocket, but it'll cost – it costs in the long run and before it starts to pay back off. Yeah, right, you know, right now everybody I talk to, they, they've got these dreams of getting a Kickstarter you know, going or, or one of the other crowdsourcing things. And um, I just see a lot of disappointed people with that. Most people, uh, that's just not going to work for. They don't have the – the social capital to make that work for them. Um, you know, bank loans, most banks aren't going to loan anybody money when they're first starting their business, particularly if they're young. Um, really, you're going to have to, the people that I know, again, they started it with their own money and they started it with, with very little money. Um, and they can range everything from, from a few thousand dollars to, you know, a couple, some people, 10, 20, $30,000, but there's a lot of people out there. I met a young lady just, just this summer that uh, is a spin farmer Started her business with like two thousand dollars, and uh, she's you know pulling in about seventy thousand dollars a year. You, you don't need a lot of money. What you need more when you're first starting out is is the hard work and and the uh, the desire to go out there and build your niche. You, you, you really what you what you need to come up with is enough money to you know to cover your living expenses. And that's why I tell people the biggest thing you can do is just you know cut your consumption. Start. Uh, you know, start eating lunch at Costco. Don't don't be going out to the fancy restaurants and things because no one no one's going to believe in you like you're going to believe in yourself. And so, unless you have a relative or something, you're probably not going to get money from anybody. Don't you actually think too that like if you get what you want, it might be a bad thing, right? So if Uncle Joe loans you fifty thousand dollars to start your business, and then you think, okay, because I have that fifty thousand dollars, I can go full time right away. And I can walk away from my job, and I can pay my bills for a year, year and a half if I'm smart about it. It seems like a good thing. But to me, a lot of times in an entrepreneur, it builds complacency. Like, they don't have that fire lit hard under their ass to get things done. Where, when, like, when I was building TSP, you know, and I was, it didn't cost me a lot of money to build TSP, really. It, it, was, it took some investment and, and not being short-sighted, but having built other businesses, it was irrelevant to me. But it cost me a lot of time. And I remember my wife saying things like, all you do is work, all you do is work. And I'm like, but I'm doing this now because the way I see this, in a year or two, neither one of us will ever work conventionally ever again. And that ended up being the way that it was. But it took that attitude of, okay, I have a full-time business I'm running that's conventional with people everywhere and crap that takes up my time. I have to be there from 8 o'clock in the morning till 7 to 8 o'clock at night sometimes. And then I come home, and I've got some time for my family, and then i got to sleep. But you know what? Between 3 and 5 o'clock in the morning, nobody bothers me. So get up at 3 o'clock, get everything done, and do the show in the car. So like, if somebody just hands you a, 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 a roll of bills and says, here, finish your business with this, I don't know that you have that level of a absolute attack-it-make-it-happen mentality going on that it takes to get that business from a dream to a reality. 
Right. And, and you see the same thing within family businesses and small businesses. But, you know, the, the founder that starts it, generally that business falls apart in the third generation. You know, his, his son may be able to make it work, but then by the time it gets to the grandkids, uh, they don't have the same, you know, you know, entrepreneurial spirit that the old man that started it did. And uh, you, see, you see that a lot there. Um, we're, we're a spoiled society. So yeah, same thing with your kids. You know, I think if you spoil your kids, if you don't make them work for things, they take it for granted. I'll tell you something, too, with, with, with funding your business. And, and I'll give you this. This is an example that I know it works because my teenage kid's doing it now. And this is, again, I'm, I'm trying to teach my kids to be entrepreneurs. So I've got a son that works a lot of hours. He works at a fast food restaurant because he's you know, just in high school. But um, he also wants to do something for himself. He likes cars. He's looking at different ways he can he can make money in cars. Because I said, you know, do do what you like to do. Kind of follow your passions, but make sure there's a market for it. Make sure he can make money. And um, so he wanted to sell cars, right? Well, he's 17. He's not gonna really can't get a dealer's license, and he he doesn't really have the money to buy a car to flip them and things. But he went down. He started talking to uh, people that, that have body shops, and they've got a lot of spare parts sitting around. And so he's he's now reselling used body parts, you know, fenders and headlights and things like that. And so and he didn't have to get any money to get started up because these guys that have body shops, they got a bunch of these old parts laying around that they don't want to throw away. They know their value in them, but they don't have time to, you know, put them on Craigslist and try and sell them. And so they need a young kid that's willing to come in there and sort through the stuff, clean up the parts, repackage them and, and try and sell them. And then, you know, it's kind of a consignment thing. If he sells the parts, um, he, he, you know, he doesn't buy the he doesn't buy the parts up front. If he sell, if he sells the parts, he gets the money, and then he uh, he uh, he you know splits it or buys it from the uh, the auto body sure. shop at that time. So I mean, there's a perfect business that you can start from scratch. All you need is time and energy and willing to go out and knock on some doors and talk to people. Uh, the other side of that is that don't think that this is isn't a lot of money. No, no, my kid's just getting into it. He's not making you know anything. But these parts, I was shocked. I mean. He's got like Lexus headlights and stuff that you you know use parts that are come off of a wrecked car. They're selling for seven, eight, nine hundred dollars. Unbelievable! Mm. It's unbelievable. You know, go on go on eBay and look up uh, look up used auto parts. It's, it's it's phenomenal. Do you think that like so? This is the other thing I try to explain to people with getting that first business going. I don't care if it ends up not working. It's priceless. Like, you can go to, like, one of the big universities around here, you know, SMU, right? It's huge, and you can, they have a great master's program in business, and it's probably, as hard as I am on universities, one of the best. But I don't think it teaches a person the knockdown, drag-out, necessary thinking of an entrepreneur, the creative, intuitive response to problems that running a business, even one that doesn't quite make it, does when I started doing web-based business stuff, for example, you know, I did four or five things that made a little bit of money, but I wouldn't call them successes. I have one lingering around today that I make a few hundred dollars a month off of just from its residual effect, but I don't consider that business a success. But yet, it's that experience that when you find something that really does click and you run into roadblocks, and you will, that gives you this ability to think the way an employee could never ever think they just and, and I've employed enough people to know they don't think that way they're not going to think that way it's not going to happen only that entrepreneurial mind can make those adaptations I mean don't you think that like even that first business even if it doesn't become the long-term thing 
is necessary to get that mind going that way? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, even with my son, as my wife said, you know, gee, you know, our boy spent a lot of time on this. He's not really making any money yet. Um, and I'm like, I don't care. I don't care if he loses money. Uh, this is this is invaluable. He's, he, he'll ne- he'll learn more doing this, you know, his senior year in, in high school than he's ever going to learn anything they're going to teach him in high school. That's for sure. But um, just the whole process, he's dealing with with customers that you know say they want something and then they don't they don't buy it or they don't show up when you go to deliver to them or or he you know he's got to learn how to pack things up and ship them and he, he maybe he estimates his uh, his shipping costs wrong and so he loses money on that sale. I mean, this is that's where you learn and. Uh, and I think Dave Ramsey calls things stupid tax. Uh, you know, years ago when I used to listen to him, he'd say, well, when you do something stupid, you know, it's just a stupid tax. Well, this is yeah. the same way. Well, this is an entrepreneurial tax. Uh, what would you pay if you go to a university and you take a business class and charge you, what, $1,000, $10,000 uh, yeah. just for one class? So if, if, you, oh, yeah. if you go out and lose $5,000 on your first business, that was tuition. You know, it was a couple credit hours. You're, all, well, yeah, you're, always, looking, you're always looking to advance the ball. You know, I... I tell people I'm a, I, yeah, I'm an overnight success. It took me 25 years to do it, though. Uh, I, I worked a lot of hours turning my hobby into into my career. I can I can trade stocks. I can do all these things now, not because I read about them in a book, but because I've been doing it for nearly 30 years. And I started out just doing very small trades, you know. And and even once I built my business, I started with my family, then I went to my friends, and then you know it just it snowballs from there. You don't. Uh, you're not going to get something handed to you. You got to go out and build it. Well, and here's what I've noticed, right? So I've seen people go financially bust due to job losses and bad investments and things like that. And I've seen people who had built relatively successful businesses go bust too, for whatever reason. If you look at them five years later, the guy that owned his own business almost always has another business that's profitable. And the guy that got knocked down out of the corporate world, not always, but more often than not I've seen, is working a job that pays less, that has less prestige, that has less of everything, because he got knocked down that rung and never fully recovered. But the entrepreneur just just immediately says, even if I take a job like to, to pay some bills, like I know this is not what I'm doing. And, and, and they're immediately looking, what's my next play? Yeah, that's so true. You see that in corporate America all the time. When you you guys, you see guys that get into their fifties, and if for whatever reason they weren't on the right career track or the just the industry they're in, you know, didn't work out. You know, the software they they used was outdated, or uh, you know, I was industrial sales for a long time. I did a lot with paper. I saw a lot of guys in the paper industry just get crushed because you know you don't use paper like you used to. Um, and and so those guys that were in their late forties, you know, fifties, sixties, they couldn't adapt. Um, but to your point, a, a, an entrepreneur that's in his 50s, if things fall out for him, he'll find out how to get back up on his feet. Um, and it's because, too, you, you don't have the stigma. In corporate America, you're going to say, you know, people think there's security there, but there's not. You know, once, yeah. once they, they get fired or they get a boss that doesn't like them or, you know, just whatever, the division gets bought out by a different company, um, they're, they're behind an eight ball and they – they, they're relying on one or two other people for their career. If you're starting a small business, and, and that's why I always preach small business. I don't so much talk about business. I talk about small business because it's something you can build locally. When you have a small business, you don't have one or two people that that um, are responsible for your future. You have hundreds or thousands of clients. And you know if one or two doesn't work out, well, you have 900 other people you can go sell to. Definitely. I mean, I started up a marketing firm years ago with my partner, Neil Franklin, and our first 
customer out of the gate, honest to God, was Donald Trump. Right? I mean, that's that's a home run. But two weeks into it, we had hired staff to handle what we had we had acquired and all. And if we had lost that customer, our business is broke. Right now, if I lose a customer tomorrow, I'm not happy about it. I want to know, assuming they were a good customer, right? I mean, we could probably have a conversation about firing customers in a little bit because there's a time to do that. But assuming they were a good customer and I've lost them, I want to know why. I'd like to win their business back. But the reality is they will not affect my ability to make uh, a decision to take my wife to dinner, let alone my mortgage payment, because I'm, my, my risk is dispersed across thousands of customers. And that just seems to me to be a lot more stable of a business model than a business based on one or two large customers. Oh, exactly. Um, and even kind of for me to personalize that, you know, what I did when I set up my own business, I, I offer a very uh, a very high service of money management. I, you know, I don't. I'm not really not an advisor. I'm a money manager and. Normally, what I would do would be something you would get in a hedge fund or someone that would have to have a million or more dollars to to work with, the, you know, to, to get the kind of service that I offer. But because I was managing, I, because I had my own money to manage anyways, I was able to subsidize my business as I first started it so I could afford to take on smaller clients. But that was really my game plan. I my my sweet spot, the, the people that I love to invest money for have like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So, again, it's that, sure. it's that small business guy. He has maybe a million or half a million in his in his own business he's got his house paid for 300,000 and then he has another couple hundred thousand that that uh, I invest for him i i like that i would rather have four of those guys than one millionaire you know one person with just uh, you know, that gives me a million it it gives me uh, a great uh, uh much more ability like you talk about firing firing clients it gives me the ability to be very selective in who i take because i i i don't i don't make money doing one transaction. You know, my business model is I have somebody for 10 or 20 years. And mm-hmm. so this is a long-term relationship for me. So I can really be selective up front with my clients. But yeah, I'd, I'd much rather have four people with $200,000 than one person with a million. Well, yeah. And see, you have found like this interesting niche because knowing something about wealth management, I know that most of the people that I can get as a financial advisor, money manager, whatever you want to call it, and you're right, most of them won't do what you do, that at my pay grade, let's say, they are consumer-level people who are trained in relationship sales, and the home office spits out a pie chart of how I should invest based on a, a, a form that they do with me that I could honestly do with an automated system online. And that's really what they are. And I know it pisses people off when I say that, but I, I don't care. I've been around long enough to know that that's generally what you get. I also know that the people like my friend Neil, who's a multimillionaire, have financial advisors that would look at me and go, go away. I, I legally can't even work with you, right? You know, they're taking accredited investors. They, a lot of them have thresholds of two to two and a half million in net worth, at least a million in liquid net worth income thresholds of at least a quarter million dollars a year, and they don't even, they, they can't even bother to talk to you. And so you've come into this and said, yeah, I'm not going to take the guy with 10 grand. And, and honestly, let's face it, the guy with 10 grand, his, his investment goes down two points, he's calling you and wanting to know what to do about it. And you're like, dude, just go away. Yeah, and that guy with uh, 10 you know, grand. I can't and that worry guy with- about that. That's a day change. We're in this for you know a, a one-month play or a one-year play or whatever in this particular investment. But the guy that's worth you know a couple hundred thousand bucks in liquid, 
He understands that. I'm not going to worry about it day to day to day. I'm worried about what are you doing for me quarterly. And you found that niche where it's really, I'm not saying no one but you's doing it, but there's not a lot of people doing it. I've met one other person in the last 15 years doing it that way. Yeah, it's, it's a very small niche, and uh, that's, you know, it took me a while to figure that out, but that's how I developed this niche and why I'm in it. Um, hey, to your point, too, about that guy with $10,000, he needs to not be investing. He needs to be saving it anyways. That's, yeah. that's an emergency fund. That's, uh, that's the, he, he's still in the, in the saving stage. He's not in the investing stage, and that's what I tell people. Um, you, don't, you can't afford me, but you also don't need me. You just need to save. Save your money, and um, someday you'll get to the point where you need my services. Yeah, absolutely. I think that here's the thing. So let's say I have $10,000 to invest and let's say I make a decent return for the year. 10%. John, I know you're not a student of, uh, of, of common core math, but how much money did I make? A thousand, what, 10, 10, you said $10,000, $1,000? So a thousand bucks. So instead of worrying about all the things I did and put my money at that much risk, I could have just put it into a, a savings account or a jar for that matter. And I probably could have made way more than that delivering pizzas part. Absolutely. That's why I tell people, you're, you're gonna, the hours you're going to spend focusing on investing, you're not going to make any money. But if you go get a part-time job or you work some extra overtime or you go educate yourself somehow so that next year you can you know, get more a better job or more per hour or get an apprenticeship program or whatever, that's where you invest in yourself. You know, you, uh, like we talked about, I mean, the people that have money when they're 50 and 60 years old is because they built it when they were younger. And um, that's, what these, that's what people have to do. They have to invest in themselves when they're young and learn how to produce an income before they actually start investing. Uh, now, now, you also involve, advise people to focus on what's unique about where they live, their geographic location. Yeah. And, and that's interesting because you, like me, often give advice that maybe you're not actually doing, or at least people would look at you and think you're not, right? Because, like, I have people all over the country, all over the world listening to my show, but yet I agree with your advice. Um, you, you, you take an investor in Florida, assuming they were otherwise qualified. But yet you're telling people to focus on their geography. How do you mean that then? Yeah, and I'm and for what I'm going to refer to right now is I'm talking about that small business person that's just getting started. You know, once once you develop your business and you grow, sure you can grow outside of, and particularly if you're using the internet or something, if you're in that kind of a service business, you can grow well outside your geographic boundaries. But for when you're first getting started, um, for that person that's looking to take the first step. Start where you're at. I mean, a lot of people are, you know, you've heard the people, well, I want to be a farmer, but I don't have any land. Uh, you know, they're always looking for the things they, why they can't get started. But start where you're at. So if you're living in the city and you can't afford land, well, you know, look at the spin selling model where you're, you're using people's backyards or um, people. What I tell people is where you have to start where you're at. Okay, so when you think about being in the city, if you're in a city or suburban area, you live in the market. You live where the people are buying things. So what you have to do is you have to probably focus on services. You're more likely to be able to find a way to provide people a service and charge them for that than you are to actually be able to manufacture a product if you're in a city because what you know rents are high. Um, there's a lot of rules and regulations. Uh, labor costs are high if you want to hire employees. That's all expensive in the city, but you have the built-in market there. So all your customers are, are living right around you. So oftentimes it's just a matter of you starting your own service business just to get your foot in the door and to learn these business business principles. Um, and, and then the opposite of that is if you live in a rural area, well, you're away from the market. So no, you don't have a built-in community that you can immediately sell to people, but 
maybe you're more on the manufacturing end. You're looking at exporting things. What can you make in that rural area because the land is cheaper? Maybe you can buy land or or um, lease land to, to farm or you know, talking about the, the spare parts on, on automobiles, how many rural areas have you seen that have big junkyards in them? I mean, the land's very cheap. You can afford to stock things there. Warehouses are, are going to be in, in more rural areas. So if you're in a rural area, look at look at manufacturing and figure out a way to export it to the city. If you're in the city, look at more of a service business where you can uh, you can start and sell to the people that are immediately there. And then if you're really smart and you're, and you're uh, networking and things on the Internet as you're, as you're building your – um, you know your mentors and the, and the people you're associating with. You're going to find people in rural areas that are trying to export things that they don't have a market for. If you, so, you're in the city, you can take their products that they're making out in the country and bring them into the city. Uh, and likewise, if uh, you know the pe- people in the country are linking up with people in the city as, as their distribution channel. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying there makes a lot of sense to me. It also makes me think of like when the internet was still relatively new to people, and I'm talking 2006-ish, right? Where it was it was established, but yet people's minds were not around the local thing, and we were doing you know web marketing, web development, and and, and things like that. Social media before it was cool, and we would talk to to businesses, and they'd say, "Well, the internet doesn't work for me because I sell all local," and you just want to put your palm in your face and you're thinking you have the the easiest layup for internet marketing that there is if you're local and so i think that even when the person is thinking well i want to leverage the the internet which i think you and i both agree you need that today that even if they're going to focus heavily local that that is is a, a key business to market on the internet because what did you do in 1985, John, when you were looking for a product or a service in your backyard? Yeah, it went, and you didn't know where it was. You went to what? A phone book, yellow pages. A phone book, right. Where do you go today? Yeah, I go to the internet. My my daughter saw a phone book uh, earlier this summer. They were delivering phone books. My youngest daughter, she had never, she didn't know what it was. She never seen because yeah. I always throw them the recycling bin as soon as they come. And when I to- yeah. when I told her what it was, she couldn't believe me. She thought I was teasing her. She's like. People really look businesses up in that big book. Why would you know, why would they do that? Um, the, the internet, yeah. Even if you're going to sell local, the internet has just made the distribution of information zero. It's free, and so why? What, you know, you don't. You have the choice. You don't have to use it, but why would you want to use something that's free? So the other thing that I, I see on your notes here is that it's really important for you to reach out and talk to other businesses in your area. Yeah, and I distinguish that, too, from the mentor, because the mentor is an individual that, that's maybe you're going to develop a relationship. They're going to maybe take you under their wing. They're going to tell you some uh, things that in private that maybe they, they wouldn't reveal to other people. But when you're talking to businesses, that's just more of a of a professional environment. But you want to get out there and you want to see what's what's working in your area. I mean, if you live... We, a lot of people in the permaculture talk about um, um, purpose, purposeful, uh, what do they call it, uh, p- purposeful uh, cities or, you know what I'm talking about? Purpose-built communities. Purpose-built communities. Uh, I kind of look at every economy as its purpose-built. I mean, the reason anything's there is because there was a purpose. It's it's on this, you know, Chicago was where it's at because of its access to the rivers and the Great Lakes and things and center of the country where you know, farmers could bring in their wheat and things. And it, So every city is kind of where it's at for a reason. So look at what it is where you're at. Is is it is it high tech like you'd see in in um, 
you know, San Francisco, California? Is it more agriculture like maybe you'd have in a, in a you know, rural Georgia or something? Wherever you're at, start there and then see what businesses are thriving there. Go out and talk to these people. And again, this isn't going to be where they're going to take you under your under their wing. I mean, you're going to have to get an appointment and maybe it's real formal and they're only going to answer specific questions you ask them. But talk to, see if you can get to owners of small business businesses. If you can't, uh, you know, if it's larger businesses, you're probably only going to get to talk to maybe purchasing agents or people in their sales department. But talk to them, find out what they do, uh, what what kind of things they need. Do they, um, you know, what's working for them, what's not working for them? Because you know, if that business is already there, then there's a, there's a natural market for it. What you know, what can you do to to supplement that? And particularly if you're talking to a purchasing agent, you don't go in there and try, it, you don't go in there and try and sell them something particularly when you're starting your first business because you don't have anything to sell. But if you're going out there initially just to talk to people, you want to ask them, what do you need? What do you need help with? What can't you get? And and you'd be surprised at um, how you can generate a business from that. You, if, you, if you live near a, a large, you know, you mentioned your first client was Donald Trump. I mean, if you live near a large factory or, you know, some kind of Fortune 500 company, you may be able to start a business just where they're your they're your first primary clients because because they need to source something they can't get they don't have time to get they don't want to fool with it they'll uh, they'll pay extra to get it from you. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that is like one of the greatest things that you can do as an individual when you're starting a small business and the, 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 that means that you're everything from the CEO to the the chief bottle washer. Um, you're limited in a lot of things, but you're also agile in a lot of ways. And what you can actually do is find pain points. And when I'm running a business and I have a hundred million things going on, if I talk to someone and then I become convinced that one of my pain points will go away if I give this person some business, and if it's easy and relatively inexpensive to give them a shot at it. In other words, I'm not signing a 10-year contract. I'm saying, you know what? This is something we need, and if you can take care of this, yeah, I'm fine paying your price, and they deliver, well, then I'm going back to that person over and over again whenever that pain point comes up. It doesn't matter what it is. It just means it just matters that I don't want it, and I want it to go away. Yeah, absolutely. You don't, uh, and you don't have to go far to find people that want those kind of things. I mean, look at, there's a convenience store in every block, right? Because people want convenience. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, uh, one of the th- suggestions that a guy named MJ DeMarco gave was to search Twitter with I hate or I don't like or anything people were just complaining about. And then if you did that long enough, you would find tons of ideas that you could address as to how you could make that problem go away. And I think that we often think of providing solutions from a standpoint of providing a new, something nobody's – I'm sure you've heard this from entrepreneurs. The reason this is great is nobody's doing it. Well, maybe, but maybe there's a reason nobody's doing it. But when it's like everybody has to deal with this and here's a better way to, to skin the cat, so to speak, that generally can be sold. Now, you still have a long way to go to determine if it's worth your time, will make you enough money, et cetera, but at least you know you're on the right footing. Yeah, and that's really, you know, that that whole thing about people looking for something unique, that's kind of my next point about adding value. And I tell people, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just have to find a way to where you can add value. And add value may be adding value in the product itself where you make the product better, or it just make, it may mean the delivery is better. You make it more convenient for someone to get, you know, you've improved the, the supply channel to them, or you, you've, uh, you know, you, you 
but you take away the, the pain point, right? It was they had to go through this other procedure before to get it. Now you're just taking that part away. So you just have to find out what the value is you need to provide to that either that individual consumer or to a you know to a business. And I'm a big pro- proponent of business to business sales. That's a great way. Uh, I think as these companies have gotten larger, they've cut back on staff though, and they've, they've got a lot of gaps and a lot of things that they can't handle for themselves. And so there's a lot of you know frustrated staff people that are just trying to make things work in big corporations where an, a smart entrepreneur could come in and um, and really kind of grease those skids. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you keep using the word value, and I think that kind of where we're going next with it is how to add value. And there's there's real value add, and then there's – I say it's value add, so it's value add. So I, I remember dealing with people at times who would come in when I was in the cabling industry, and they'd say, well, we're a value-added reseller of, of these products. And I'd be like, well, we're we're buying those products from, you know, a warehouse distribution center right now. What value do you add? Well, we provide service. Well, I don't need service. I need the freaking cable on the job site on time for the lowest price I can get so I don't get my throat cut by my competitor. So that's not value add. But there are ways to add value, and there are ways for middlemen to come in and actually bring value. You just have to be clear on what it is. And you have to make sure that it's a value to the customer, not just in your head. Right. Yeah. The value's got to be the value proposition has to be on the client's end, not on yours. Uh, they because they don't care what your value is. They don't care why it's good for you to. Uh, that's a lot of people when they go out selling things. It's always about them, right? It's about how how this is going to work for me. No one cares. No customer cares. They just want to know what's in it for them. Um, you know, as far as the adding value, you know, the real value adds where you make something better. Like like Apple, you and I have talked about this before. Apple didn't invent PCs. They didn't invent laptops. They didn't invent MP3 players. They didn't invent smartphones, um, tablets. Right? They didn't invent any of that stuff, but they made it better. And they, uh, you know, I know I had mentioned that before. You you even made my statement better by saying that they not only made it better, they didn't wait until they made it better. They came out with iteration one, and then they went to 2.0. I mean, they kept kept iterating. That you know, they kept making themselves better, not only just making the product better. And so that's one definite way to do it. But but that is a hard way. I mean, particularly if you're starting off with a small business, you may not be able to make the product better, but you can always make the service better. And um, to the point about middlemen, I remember when the when the internet first came out, a lot of people were saying, "Oh, the internet's dead. You're gonna be able to buy things direct from manufacturers." Um, and, and that's true, but I think more than anything, there's more middlemen today than there's ever been because, again, those just like those big companies, they've cut back on staff and thing, things. Those big companies don't want to deal with little, small, small customers. You know, again, my niche where I'm at in the financial industry, I'm, I'm providing a high value product, but I'm I've got a nice little sliver right out, uh, kind of at you know, mid level people where. Um, I'm attacking that group that, that people have overlooked. And so as a middleman, that's what you'd want to do with your business. Um, I, I'll give an example. I, I know a guy that sells um, uh, powder coating, okay? And his powder coating, uh, I w- when I was in the industrial business and I knew people that sold powder coating, they sold it by, you know, the, the, the truckload, I mean, these big Gaylord containers of it. They were selling Tons and tons of it at uh, you know, to you know, Ford Motor Company or somebody to, to paint their cars with, um, and that's the that's the end of the business I was familiar with. But I met this recently met this small distributor guy that he he sells uh, powder coating, but he sells it you know by the ounce by the pound. Um, no big companies want to want to break their lots up and sell small little colors or small little quantities to anybody. So he's found a real niche business you know over the internet where he can he can buy things in bulk and just repackage them basically in Ziploc bags. And, you know, again, this is not an inexpensive product. It, it's, it's, uh, 
it's something that he can make a very good income on, but he didn't have to be Einstein to figure it out. He just had to connect uh, connect up a lot of these small users with the uh, the products that he could afford to bring in in inventory. And again, and not not a high investment. I mean, he started out by just having you know ten or twelve uh, varieties of powder coats. He started there as he built up his business, built up his reputation. Uh, he was able to you know rent some space and and um, and and bring in more more inventory. But that, that's a perfect example of where a middle a middleman can make a big niche because there's a need for that, and the big companies don't want to do it. They don't even want to be bothered with it. There's tons of things that could be done. You could, for instance, decide that you're going to, and this would actually be much easier as you develop a customer base to push a product into, but you could determine that I can do a bulk buy on X, and then I can sell units of X at Y price, and each one is a margin of, of Z. And because of that, I need to have at least 20 orders to make this worth doing. Well, you have a, you could go out and, and take orders without actually taking money, like pre-orders. And then say, at the end of the week, you only got like four people that wanted it and go back to them and say, you know what, we, we, we can't deliver on this. There's not enough interest. I haven't taken your money, right? But if I get the orders, then I'm risk-free when I place my order. As long as I know I can get it on the other end. It's a readily available bulk purchase. So there, there's – and that that can actually be the initial stages of developing a customer base. And then what I don't think people really get is – as you grow that customer base, bolting on new services and products or new opportunities gets a lot easier because you have a funnel to work with. Yeah, the hardest part of any business is acquiring the initial customers. I mean, that's where you always spend the most money. So when you're developing your small business, once you have those those customers, it's easier to sell them new products and services than it is to go out and get new clients. Always. It's, it's always cheaper that way. Yeah, definitely. We've had a lot of people on talking about things like running a, a farm-based business or things like that that said, as soon as we started to sell, we had to add more products because the customer would be like, well, do you have this or do you have that? And they're already there and they're already spending the money and it was just ridiculous to not make the, the deal with them. And that a lot of times in a business, the first purchase a customer makes is a loss leader. You don't really make a lot of money on it. But if the first purchase involves two items, it's profitable. Once that person is into more than a single product, you're actually at a high enough ARPU or average revenue per unit now that the business is actually functional. And understanding that allows you to think scalability early on, like where do I go from here? But don't let that prevent you from at least going and making that first step, I guess. Right, yeah, people have to be willing to to put the effort out there to build their initial network. And um, again, like we talked about earlier, that's why the entrepreneur that fails, maybe his market goes away. He was selling widgets and those widgets are replaced by something else. He doesn't fail as an individual as an, as an individual because he still has that client base that are buying other things. These are people that trust him. They, they know that he's reliable. They know he's honest. And so if he comes pitching them something totally different than the widget, that they need, they 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 don't. They may know that he doesn't have a, a lot of expertise in that new widget, but they know that he's he's honest. He's he's gonna you know do what he says, um, and 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 so his value is not in his product knowledge. His his value is in his customer base. Absolutely. So as you're going into business, there's this big scary word called business plan, 
And there's a lot of different types of business plans. There's a very formal business plan that you might take to a venture capitalist, same type of business plan that an entrepreneur, investor like me might ask you for to make you go away because I know you don't have one and I just don't have time to talk to you right now. But every person going into business should have a business plan, but not necessarily a 47-page document with uh, you know uh, critical market analysis, funds analysis, things like that. Uh, that a person starting the type of business we're talking about needs an entirely different, more agile, simple type of plan. Yeah, people need just a simple business plan. Um, and it can be on the back of an envelope or it can be on the, nap, on, on the napkin where you and your partner are sitting down over lunch writing things out. But, you, you know, you have to do the, the Stephen Covey thing where you start with the end in mind. What, how do you want this to work? What, what kind of products are you going to deliver to your, your customers? What kind of customer base is it? How much money do you have to start up with initially? I mean, those simple things you have to formulate into a plan, but I stress to keep it very simple because I think everybody needs a simple one. I say that because there's, you know, there's, there are two ends of the spectrum. There's the people that obsess about things and they just go on with endless spreadsheets and they have paralysis by analysis and they never do anything. And so what they need is just a simple business plan so they can get started. And then the other end of the extreme, there's the people that shoot from the hip, you know, it's ready, fire, aim. They don't plan anything. Well, what do they need? They need a simple business plan. So just start with the simple plan. Right, the first line is where you are. You know, the last line is kind of where you want to be and then fill in the blanks to get there. But, and I really encourage people to do it around their lifestyle. That gets back to you know, starting the business where you're at, trying to start a business with the first steps, knowing, again, that this, it may be a failure. You may end up losing a couple thousand dollars. But you're learning because that first business isn't uh, may not be the be all and end all of of, uh, of where you're going to go. I I knew that I was, you know, I had, I had built my foundation of what I wanted to do in investing in stocks, but I didn't know that I wanted to do it for other people. Uh, you know, I didn't know if I could if I could you know handle the stress and, and the you know those types of things of of dealing with other people's money. I could do my own, but I didn't know if I could do other people's. And so for a number of years, I looked at other businesses. I eventually came to the conclusion that no. I can't handle other people's money. I, I would enjoy that, and, and I, you know, so I set up my own firm. But again, there was that interval of five years or so in there where I was doing some other things, where I, I also learned, you know, the business skills that helped me get to where I'm at today. So my my end plan changed as I went along, but it always advanced me towards a life of my ultimate goals. The Again, I'm more about freedom than I am, am about money. So I don't want to I don't want to make millions of dollars and be miserable. You know, I want to have a nice income, but I also want to have a very, an even better lifestyle. And, and again, it kind of, when we talked about the beginning about permaculture, that's what pulls me into the whole, you know, things that you've done with, with TSP on, on permaculture. I think back to my grandfather, he didn't have, he didn't have money. He was very poor in terms of what, in terms of money, but in terms of wealth, he was very rich. He had very good, you know, pure food. He had he had food that he knew the source of. He raised it. He didn't use chemicals. He, there was no you know hormones or antibiotics in the animals that he ate. There was no pesticides or herbicides in, in the in the crops that he grew. Um, so he had a much healthier lifestyle. And really, I think from that as- aspect, was much much more wealthy than I am. Yeah, definitely. Um, another thing, when people think of business, owning a business, they always think of being you know the 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 owner. You've got all these people working for you. Not always the best plan, is it? No, no, not at all. And um, 
And that's too why with your business plan, you want to keep things sim- simple and keep it flexible. And a lot of times that means that maybe you're your only employee for, for a while or maybe forever. Again, with the Internet, it's made it so much easier. Um, you know, you can go out and, and freelance things like never before. If you don't know how to build a website, you can find somebody that knows how to build a website. If you need a bookkeeper, you can find someone to keep your books. Uh, you know, they may be in India. They may be in, you know, they may be in Des Moines, Iowa. The Internet just brings all that available to you. So I would really encourage people, keep employees to a minimum, contract out the work. Um, You not only want to do that because it keeps your life simple, but I think you'll get better service if you hire someone, you know, for what you're able to pay them. Uh, On an hourly basis, you may not be able to get a good quality person, but if you're paying them for results, you can find, uh, you know, for example, you may not be able to hire a good person to keep your books that we put them on your staff, but you can certainly find a CPA or a bookkeeper that you can pay to do to do your particular taxes or to do your, you know, your quarterly statements for you. And, and you can get really good quality service uh, at, at a much more affordable price that way. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people from the employee end don't understand a fundamental reality you quickly come into when you go into your own business. As an employer, I don't hire you to do a task. I hire you to make me money. One way or the other, in the end, if you're not making me money, you are not long for this company. You are gone. And the bigger companies, that it appears to the employee that the company just has money and there's a job there and you go do it, tend to not understand that we're, they're all in that bolt, that boat. But the minute that you go into business for yourself and you start considering things like signing the front side of a paycheck or paying a contractor or making an investment in marketing – um, I think it can go too far where people are afraid to spend any money, and then they just can't get, you know, like, I want to start a business for zero dollars. Well, don't ask me. I We're going to spend a few hundred bucks at least in setting up brand and, and, and things like that. But when they when they get into that boat, they start to understand that the action has to create value that's, that's that has as a metric, that there actually is a bottom line profit to it. And... I think that's very a very good reason for people to start a business, even if they end up working for somebody long term, is a side business to to get into that mindset that we're all self employed. I guess is where I'm going with this. We're all independent contractors. We just have this illusion of employment, but if we're not profitable for a company sooner or later, we're going to go away. Oh, absolutely. And and for for people to be thinking about that now is the time to do it. Start with your hobby now. Start with something you like to do. Figure out how you can make make uh, you know value to it that your friends or family want to buy from you and just increase from there if the day ever comes where you do get laid off from your business you'll be able to fall back on that you may be able to turn that business just into a hobby and decide to quit on your own um, or and even even if it's just what you do where you work you know maybe you're a, a software engineer maybe you're an attorney or whatever and you're on you know a corporate staff always consider contract work. See, you know, hey, could I do this? If I ever left this employer, could I go do this for two or three other employers? Could, you know, could could people buy 10% of my time, 20% of my time? And, you know, can I put together, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, 30 customers? Because as an employee, you're only going to make what your, what your employer thinks you can get away with paying you. If you're your own contractor or your own small business, you, um, you're, the person that's, that's paying you for that particular job never knows, um, you know, what your overall salary is for that year, what your overall income is for that year. So they don't really know if they're overpaying or underpaying you. They just know they're getting getting 
the job done that they want done. But you could be making $300,000 a year as a, as a computer programmer where if you were on staff, they'd say, oh, we can't pay this guy. You know, he's, he's capped out at 120000 He's never going to make more than that. Well, if you're very productive and you have 10 or 15 or 20 clients you're doing the same thing for, you can easily be pulling down $300,000, $500,000. Can, can you talk about how people need to think this way more and more because of some of the things that are coming that are going to create change. They're going to create opportunity, but they're also going to create pain. One of the trends that you pointed out in, a, in an earlier interview, and I've been on for years about now, is automation. And a lot of entry-level positions are going to go away, but I think it's going to have a, you know, you hear about trickle-down economics. I think there's going to be some trickle-up trickle up effect. Oh, yeah. It's- if, I, if I cut headcount, right, then I also cut the requirement for middle management, and a lot of people that are in this position of being fairly okay financially are in that mid-tier of management. And it's just a fact that if I, ha- if I go from a 10,000-employee headcount to a 5,000-employee headcount, I need less of those people in that middle uh, sector. Can you talk about how you maybe see automation doing things like that? Yeah, automation is definitely – and it's been a trend for – for decades and it's going to keep happening. Um, and it's even, and it's affecting white collar jobs as well as, um, you know, entry level or blue collar jobs. You, you mentioned the relationship, uh, financial advisor. Well, that guy is, they're panicking right now. If you read the literature in their industry, they're afraid of a thing called robo advisors. There, there's, yeah. there's, you know, these, these apps basically now that you can plug in all your demographics, what your goals are, how much money you have, blah, blah, blah. And, Boom! It puts you in, you know, it puts you in this Fidelity fund or puts you in this Vanguard mutual fund, and um, it does everything they were doing, but you don't get the relationship and you don't pay the high fees. You know, so those those guys are worried, uh, and, that, and that's an example of automation hitting white collar workers. But um, it, it's going to hit every area, and and personally, I think it's a I think it's a good thing because I think as it always has in the past, it gets rid of menial jobs. You know, I mean, I look back to my grandfather that was a coal miner, um, and he was in this in the early days when they were. It wasn't quite pick and shovel only, but I mean, these guys were, you know, using their own blasting caps and lighting the, mm-hmm. lighting the fuse. I mean, we don't do that anymore, right? Automation has made mining coal safer and better, and I'm happy for automation. I, I wouldn't want to have people to have to do it like my grandfather did it. So I think it's going to improve people's lives, but it's also going to mean a lot of entry level jobs are going to go away. And personally, I don't want to get political on this, but really, it's not the automation that's making those entry level jobs go away. It's government bureaucrats and regulation and minimum wage that's making the jobs go to automation. The companies would much rather have an employee for uh, for menial tasks and entry level positions because employees are very versatile. You can you can train them every day. They can do different jobs. You can fire them when you don't need them. If you have to invest in a machine, generally just does one thing and it's a big capital investment. So you know I think this is driven more by by the um, you know minimum wage and government than it is actually by by the technology itself. But but those things will go away. And so the way you can use that as an advantage. Um, is is you know particularly people with with skills and abilities like the trades learn how to you know if you're mechanically um, if you're mechanically oriented learn something about computer programming because all these automation things they're going to be pro you know there's going to be some kind of uh, at least minimal programming involved there's going to be a lot of electronics involved so if you already know how to you know, do basic mechanics well now learn something more about programming or more about electronics if you're a computer programmer likewise do it the other way well learn a little bit about mechanics learn a little bit about not only how to program things but hey how do you take these screws apart how do you, which boards do you pull out which ones do you insert um, because a lot of this automation 
It isn't going to involve high-level maintenance. It's not like you're going to be, you know, tearing down a transmission and rebuilding it. But you are going to have to go into places, either factories or, or you know, restaurants where they have um, robotics or you know, whatever kind of automation. And those things are going to they're going to break all the time. Think of the copier when, when Xerox copiers came out. You know, there, were, there were a lot of guys that made their living as as uh, copy repairmen. And that's not going to be any different with with automation, and then it's also always going to be changing. So you're going to need, you know, you're going to need salesmen that know how to do that. You're going to, um, you're going to have to have people that are um, uh, skilled with finances to be able to to uh, to do uh, needs analysis, projections, and and um, uh, you know project values for people as to whether or not the investment's w- worth happening. So it's going to affect all levels, and I think people just need to be be more flexible. They have to they have to take on another skill. Whatever they're good at, just learn a little bit extra, and they're going to be fine in this, this new economy. I also think as we get more to these people that are working independently and more contractors, you know, th- this, this country was built on small business. It was built on the individual farmer. Um, that's a good thing. I think it's better that we're going to go back to that model and less of the corporate model. It'll be better for people's individual freedoms. Uh, people will be paying their own taxes you know, quarterly writing out their own tax statements instead of just having the employer withdraw it without them seeing it. That I think will change people's perceptions about how much money they're really paying to the government. I Those think are all you good could see tax, tax revolution due to uh, employment revolution. I, I don't think people know what they pay in taxes. I really don't. And I, I think the big one they don't know about is the Social Security. Absolutely. They, that matching Social Security, when you see it, and then you realize, and you look at your, you know, your father-in-law or whatever, and you see him getting, you know, fourteen hundred and fifty bucks a month, and and you're looking at the reality that that number has always been double what you think it is. All of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, what are they doing with my money? And then you realize what they're doing with your money. They're building the apparatus of slavery that you exist in. And you're not so cool with it anymore. I, I have been amazed at people who I would call devout big government liberals. The transformation that happens with one year of business behind them. And I don't mean working for a company in a business with a business degree. I mean running a business is, is unbelievable. It, 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 is, it is something you would never be able to convince them of, but life kicks them in the ass for 12 months. They pay that bill one time and they go, this sucks. This is not right. Yeah, yeah. the easiest way to make a liberal conservative is for them to get mugged, you know. So, um, <laughs> and there's nobody that will mug you the way Ira Ramon Sancio will. That's absolutely right. And so <laughs> th- that's, what, that's why I'm optimistic about the future. I'm optimistic about the, uh, the automation. It, it is going to be a pain point for a lot of people. Um, but, again, I do see it more so being a pain point for people – in overseas low labor markets like like China, for example, I think a lot of those, you know, very unskilled, you know, frankly, just very cheap jobs that are making cheap products, that's going to go away. And as you get as we get more into you know 3D printing and um, just computer operated manufacturing, it'll not only mean that you'll be able to order more customized things for what you want, but it's also going to mean that that's, uh, I think a lot of that's going to be made more locally and not necessarily locally to you, but, you know, again, there's going to be reasons certain things spring up in certain communities. You know, Chicago is going to, for whatever reason, specialize in a certain kind of product and maybe they're going to, that manufacturer is going to come back to Chicago and other things are going to go to 
to uh, you know to uh, Minneapolis. But it, I really believe a lot of that's going to leave these emerging markets, low labor markets in India and China. I think are going to feel a lot more pain than Americans will. And, and, well, yeah. and consequently, and I, that'll be better for Americans because they'll be they'll be the people that are operating the, that equipment, fixing that equipment, and and also it's going to make new things that we never could make before. We're going to these the, the manufacturing will lower the cost of things, and it'll be able to make more complex products than we've ever. And I don't know what they are. People say, "What is?" It? I don't know. It's just new things that we've never thought of. My my grandfather that was that worked on the railroad, he used to carry a pocket watch. Uh, you know, it was a big old gold filled pocket watch, and. Um, that thing had, you know, thousands of moving parts. It was really complicated. The factory that built that was probably no more. Uh, it probably had a bigger footprint than today, where we make smartphones. But um, mm-hmm. you know, that smartphone has le- less moving parts. It, it, it does it does immensely more things than my grandfather's pocket watch ever did. Um, but, but my grandfather could have never imagined it. You know, he just he would just he couldn't believe you know what we have today. And so I think that's the way it's going to be in the future. Um, they're going to be have and have nots. And people that that I think have a prepper state of mind are going to be more likely to be haves. Yeah, definitely. When I think about like the low end work workers taking it on the chin in the in the export markets too, what I think of is the quality of the crap they're producing has become crappier over time. So th- this time of year, you know, one of the big things that people buy are Christmas ornaments. And and I don't know about you, but I have watched. Just not just like the quality of manufacture, but the quality of like, do I even want that on my tree? Right. Just go down and down and down and down over the years. And I look at some of the ornaments that we have that are 25, 30 years old. And they're like family heirlooms. Like we'll give them to our son who will give them to his son. And I think like that is a niche that could come back. And and the 3D printing is something that might make that type of thing a, a reality uh, once again. That I, I, you're about my age, right? When I was a kid, like it, you bought ornaments because they were something that kind of fit your family or or whatever. And now it's like just like this spray painted crap. And I don't have a better word for it. I'd use a better word, but it's just it's just garbage. And it, that. So people say, well, that's Christmas ornaments, Jack. That's once a year or whatever. No, that's like that is like a little microcosm of the entire overseas manufacturing process. It's gotten so profitable to rubber stamp junk and sell it to America that they've actually gotten sloppy at the slop, if that makes sense. And then everything runs in these cycles, and Americans are starting to turn around and go, I want quality. I want something beautiful. I want something with with, with uh, uniqueness. I want like that's becoming like the new demand. And if you move into a world with with dozens and hundreds and thousands of individual entrepreneurs, there's almost no demand that can't be met. And then if we look at tying the internet into that, and a lot of this stuff can be shipped. That's how it got from Beijing to you know Houston on a ship. It could certainly be shipped from Houston to Tallahassee. Um, there's almost no long tail that can't be exploited with the internet to find those unique demands. If that all makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And you know that I'm like scrambling there. No, no, no. You're right. And and the the crap level on the Christmas ornament it isn't it isn't limited to that, right? I, I live in a house that's seven years old. So my my oldest appliance in the house is is no more than seven years old. Let's see. And so in this amount of time, I've replaced the dishwasher, the hot water tank. Um, I've replaced the uh, 
one of the faucets in the kitchen. I'm trying to think what else. I, there's like three or four other things. Just in seven years, the stuff is just garbage. Uh, oh, the furnace. The furnace had a major part go out really? of it. Really? Um, yeah. The, the, the washing machine's making noises. There's some – every now and then there's some weird sounds coming out of the, the fan in the air – in the uh, – in the refrigerator, right? And this stuff is not older than seven years. And I, I remember when I was a kid, you know, going back right now, I was a kid and the snow was 10 feet tall. But we, I think, I remember our water tank lasted something like, our hot water tank lasted like 25 years. You know, oh, yeah. I, I'm not getting five years out of mine. How can that be? Um, and this thing is, you know, a lot of this stuff, even if, even if the parts are assembled in the United States, a lot of the components are coming in from overseas and they're junk. And I, I, yeah. I think again, with the internet, we're going to know more about, Hey, that's a bad brand brand. Don't buy it. Um, Hey, you know, again, people, I'm not, I'm not anti-China. I've been over there a lot on business. I have a lot of friends that are Chinese. I just, I just think their economy is built on a bigger house of cards than ours is. And I yep. look, I look at their poor quality where, you can't even go to a pet pet's, uh, store anymore and buy dog treats that are made in China because of the consumer uproar where people wouldn't, didn't want to buy them, right? They were afraid their dogs were going to get poisoned because they you know, they put melamine and stuff in dog treats. And so, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, and if you're not going to buy dog food from China, what are you going to buy? Yeah, you're going to buy right? Boeing jumbo jets. I mean, come yeah. on. It's, it's, uh, and again, that's going to be all good for Americans. Uh, it won't be easy. The, the oil revolution, the energy revolution we're seeing right now, I mean, oil's – $63 a barrel right now. That that came about because of automation. It was fracking, but you know fracking goes back to the late 1940s. It was really a lot of horizontal drilling. They can drill down a mile and then they can drill out two miles. So they can drill one well and then drill out in multiple ways. That's automation, right? That's robotic drilling. Uh, big you know, you know, you big data storage and things. The way things are crap today and how they weren't in the past. And if that means if we could build it in the past, we could build it today. So two things that came to my mind when you said this. One's a light bulb. I was in some caverns or whatever in, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, about two years ago, or a year ago. When I Same trip that I met you on up in Colorado for the expo. And so we went down to Colorado Springs, and we went through these caverns, and at the end of the caverns there was this old light bulb. And the guy said, we turn it on once a year. It still works. It was an original Edison light bulb. Now, they only run it for like a minute a year to see if it still works, but it still works. And they, which is, it just blows your mind because we're told today how it's amazing that light bulbs last as long as they do if they're squiggly instead of round. But this thing's been in there for 100 years. It still works. Yeah. Then the other one is when I was a kid in the 70s, I remember I'd go to my grandmother's from Florida and we have what we call the shanty, which was actually the original house, the old house, which was built like 1840s. And it, you know, it, 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 it was like the, the old man's work shed now. And in there was this refrigerator, one of those ones that's kind of like it's it's rounded, but it's like kind of octagon shaped at the same time. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Like a, absolutely. My, my, right? my grandparents was it was green. My grandparents had a green one, enamel bay green this color. This one's white or beigeous white, right? So I don't know how old this thing is, but I know I asked my grandmother about it, and she said, "Oh, when we got the new fridge, we put it out there." And I remember the refrigerator in her kitchen. I don't know how old that was, but I know it was older than what we had in my house in the 70s. So this is pushing it back into a 40s model or, or, or possibly earlier. That thing is still in that shed, and my dad still keeps beer in it. Now, I have no idea how old that thing is, but I've been through a few refrigerators in my adult life. And if we could make things that last that long in 1930, 1940, 1950, we could sure do it today if we wanted to. 
Yep, and you know that stuff was not only the technology was not only there to make it last, but the education level of the people that built that built it was you know eighth grade level or less. <laughs> it's a good point. That's a very very valid point. You know? So I know, I know you've been talking a lot about education lately, and um, you know we we definitely have not gotten smarter. No, we haven't. We my my belief is that we have replaced the word education with the word school. And, and that all of our problems stem from that, that we have equated a, a certain grade level or a certain university level or a certain name of a university or name of a school district with quality. So, like, when I was a kid, you know, another thing that was quality was a Ford truck was a tough truck, right? If you had an old Ford truck, you had quality. So, like, that Ford brand meant something. I think Ford builds a decent vehicle today compared to other things out there, but... Man, compared to what they put out in the in the in the, the the sixties and early seventies for a tough truck, I don't know. You know, it, it, the the lasting nature of those older vehicles, and and we've taken that into the university level where if you have a degree from Texas State, it has a certain level, and if you have one from Baylor, it has a little bit higher level just because it has that name on it, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the person you're hiring, or I mentioned SMU. And they're a good school. I'm not putting them down. But I had a guy that worked for me that had a marketing degree from SMU. This guy could not possibly get you to buy a bottle of water in the middle of the freaking Mojave Desert. <laughs> and he had a marketing degree. He was a great computer programmer and a great developer. But a marketer, he was not. Um, so I think that that's part of the problem, that we think that, that school equals education, where school is a way by which one can obtain an education, but most of what we've been talking about today is education from the, the street level, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, I got to tell you a couple comments on that one. It just something made me think of. I knew a guy that actually was he was a young kid, uh, just out of school, had a PhD, was you know brilliant, right? One of these brilliant prodigy type kids. The yeah. first time he got hired by the, the company and he met the CEO and he had to shake the CEO's hand, he was so nervous he had to run in the bathroom and throw up. Imagine that. I mean, yeah. what kind of social skills did that kid have? But uh, hey, the other thing too is, you know, as we're talking about this, we're talking about how things are breaking and falling apart, and I, and I do. I think they're going to get better. The example of the Ford truck, I think the engines are better today, but yeah. but the bodies suck, right? And yeah. and we're going to merge that though, and that's going to that's going to come about. Um, and you and you even see this now with uh, these small scale RVs. There's a lot of company now. The gas prices are coming down low again. There's a, sm- a lot of small conversion companies coming up where they're you know making vans into um, like kind of uh, class B motorhome kind of things. We know they're taking the good engines, but they're just totally redoing the bodies and, and things. So I think we're seeing more of that. That's opportunities for people. The appliances I talked about breaking in a home. You know, if a young man or young woman wanted to go out today and start a business, there's there's a opportunity to be a handyman. There are a lot of people that don't know how to fix things, don't know want to, don't know want don't want to, don't have the time to, whatever. They have all these things breaking around in their home. Um, you could, if you have the time and the initiative, you can look anything up on Google uh, and and you and YouTube, right? You can figure out how to fix a furnace, how to unclog a drain, or whatever. So you, with with very little skills starting out and very little money. You could start in the neighborhood you're in. If you're in an urban or suburban area, start kind of like a handyman business. Advertise yourself on Craigslist, word of mouth, things like that. Your business will grow. As it grows, you'll learn what's needed in your community. And you'll and as that little initial service business, which is kind of you know menial task, that'll grow because you'll find out in your community people are willing to pay a lot of money for you know yard work or people are 
having solar panels installed on their houses or people want their, uh, you know, their, their gutters cleaned out in the fall or whatever. You know, you'll, you'll find out you don't know that today because you're just a kid you don't know or you just knew that community you don't know. But as you start that small business, it'll grow and grow and grow. And then 20 years from now, you won't be a handyman anymore. You'll be specialized in whatever that niche market is that you developed over that year, those years, and you'll have literally thousands of clients and you'll pretty much be bulletproof because as things change, you'll still have, you know, your, your, your clients won't change, but their needs will change and you'll adapt to it. And that's just something they could start today. Well, yeah, and I think that people don't understand the reality of, of how much value you can bring there. So, for instance, there's probably nothing that I want done around my homestead or to my home that I could not figure out how to do. There's one thing I won't do. I don't mess with electricity because if it could kill me and I, I'm not in the right mood for it and I don't have the knowledge, I don't touch it. So electricity, I'll, I'll wire stuff, but I won't put down hot wires or things like that. But otherwise, there's nothing I couldn't do. There's a whole lot of things I don't have the time to do. And if I need it done and, and there's a handyman type person that can do it for me, I will pay them. It doesn't matter that I could look it up on YouTube as well and do it myself. I have a business to run. I do not have time to jack with it. Or I'll get to it eventually and there's a list of a 100 things that need to be done and it's like number 42. But if you can do it for me and I have the funds available to get it done, I will pay you and get it done. And, and that is the value add in that handyman niche, and it's massive. There's people all over the place that want things done that contractors and box store contractor type situations, they don't want to mess with it. It's too small, it's too one-off, it's too whatever. But, man, and, and, and what, what happens is, so we've found people like this, fortunately, everywhere we've been. It's a repeat customer business, and it's a referral business. You come back to that guy. Over and once you know, hey, if you call this guy and give him a job, I need gutters on the, the, the outbuilding. He's going to do it. So we need something done. And, and Darcy's like, when are we going to get it done? I'm like, call our guy. It, 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 you don't even care anymore. It's just like, I know that guy will do it. And there's so much opportunity in that space alone. And you don't have to be perfect at it as far as speed. And you might take a little bit longer to get it done, but as long as the person knows it's going to be done right, and as long as you keep at it till it is right, and you don't cost them a bunch of money or tear down their house or something, they're going to keep giving you business. Yeah, all you have to do is show up on time and charge a, a reasonable fee that you're pretty, you know, you're producing value for. It, it's yeah. it's that simple. It's that simple. And, and find that find those things that people need done, but they just don't have time to do. And there's people like me. We could do it, but we don't have time. And then there's people that are like. I just don't want to. Sure, I, I have perfect. I, I just don't I, want to do that. I have perfect knowledge about how to change the oil in my car. You know, as as, yeah. a, as a young man and yeah. early in my life, I did that thousands of times, and you know, professionally as well as on my own car. Well, I don't change my own oil anymore, and there's no way I'm going to. Um, no. So, and those jobs are available to people. Um, and again, once you start that, though, once you start, you know, raking leaves, don't stop there. Don't say, okay, I'm developing a job raking leaves. Go the next step. You're, you're always looking to scale up, and that, that's kind of too where I tell people don't quit your day job. Um, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you have a job and you don't like it, scale up from where you're at. Take that hobby, turn it into a job, try some things. You may have to do four or five different things, but even once you're doing them, you're always scaling up. You're always looking at, uh, you know, if you're, if you're in the CSA and you're selling people eggs, well, maybe they're going to want to start buying roasters. Or maybe they're going to want to start buying, you know, uh, pasture raids pigs or chickens or something 
you're always going to give look at the next product. And the higher up you go on that value chain, the more money you make. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You, you'll make more money cleaning cleaning the leaves out of gutters than you will raking them up on the grass, right? I mean, it's just it's it could be that incremental of a step, but that's how you go from making, you know, ten dollars an hour to making a hundred thousand dollars a year. And there's tons of people that do know how to do it. They just don't want to. I mean, I was a mechanic in the army. I can't tell you the last time I changed oil, changed spark plugs, did anything beyond replacing an air filter. That's about as far as I'm willing. And and honest to God, even though the guy's charging me an extra five or ten bucks to do that, when I take my vehicle in for a service, he goes, "You need an air filter." I'm like, "Just do it," because otherwise, okay. Now I got to go down to the parts store. I got to stand in line. I gotta wait for the guy to talk to me. He's gonna ask me stupid things like whether my truck's a two door or a four door when I'm buying an air filter. I don't even want to talk to him, right? And then I gotta go out and get my hands dirty, and I've got my wife that wants something else done, and I, I just put it in there, right? So that's like that's like a perfect example of something I could do it in my sleep. I just don't want to, right? You and but if I have to, don't get me wrong. If I end up dead broke someday, I will change my own oil. I will, you know do my own car maintenance and stuff like that. But at this point in my life, hey, I either have some time off finally or I'm busy, I'm busy building my business or running my business or serving a customer. Yeah, and those service jobs aren't going to go away. Some of those people are very highly paid. So, again, a young person or someone that still can make a career transition, you know, maybe rather than wasting four years in college studying something that's not useful, maybe you should go to a trade school, learn how to be a mechanic, learn how to be an electrician. Um, you know, those are those – are, you can make a lot. It's like anything, right? You can you can make money working for somebody else doing that, but you can make even more money if you have, or if you're a mechanic and you have your own shop, right? It's it's that small business we talked about. You get an education, two years, you learn how to do it. You become a, a journeyman or whatever. You go work in a garage for a while. You end up opening your own place, and you'll be the millionaire next door. You know, you'll be 50 years old. You have a million dollars. You have people working for you, and there, and there's always going to be a need. Because something's always going to break. May not, may not always be cars, right? It may be flying, flying cars or something. It, it, it'll be something different, but something's always going to break down, and people are going to have to repair it. Awesome, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you uh, being here with us today, John. You want to tell folks how they can learn more about you and uh, and get in touch with you and, and and learn more from you? Sure, it's always a pleasure to be on. Um, the TSP audience has been a, a great blessing in my life. Everywhere I go, I meet people now that that know of me through the show and. Uh, uh, I always enjoy meeting people. Um, people can find out about me. One thing I have, I have a started a podcast. Uh, my friend Jack Spearco inspired me to start a podcast about <laughs> six months ago, and and I asked him for advice, and he said, "Just shut up and go do it. Just produce content." And that's that's the best best advice I ever heard. And so I'm actually out there with about my 53rd episode. So wellsteading, kind of for you, man. Kind of like homesteading. It's a spin on homesteading. It's called wellsteading. I try and teach people just no BS. It's it's wealth building principles. Everything from Earning, saving, investing. We talk a lot about stocks because that's what I like, but it's really, uh, it's really out there for everybody with no, uh, no commercial, you know, trying to sell them anything. It's just, hey, start where you're at, save money, and learn to be, learn to be an investor someday. Um, it's obviously available on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Wellsteading.com is the podcast, is the uh, website. Also, my firm, investablewealth.com is where my investment firm is. I blog about market conditions there. I also, some of the things we talked about, I do talk about in there in a section called Building Wealth, and it's kind of my theory of where you start out as an apprentice and you work yourself up, you eventually become an entrepreneur. So they can find that information out there as well. That's all free. Uh, there's no no memberships, don't charge for anything. Um, 
just really appreciate having the people come out and, and learning from it. Um, hey, Jack, I, I know you're speaking at, at PV2 this year. I'll be out there as well. Diego has asked me to come out and talk about value-add businesses. And so I'd encourage, I know a lot of your audience will be out there, I'd encourage them stopping by and seeing me. The big takeaway I'd say from today's show is value-add. I mean, that's that's where you want to start. Don't, uh, don't be afraid to start where you're at. Find a product or service you can make better. Make it happen today. You'll be, you'll be a wealthy person in 20 years. Definitely. And make sure you're communicating that value to the other side so people know what they're buying. And my God, if I could give you one piece of advice, make it easy for people to buy from you. As a, as a final note, John, have you ever been on a website going, I want to buy your thing, right? How do I buy it? I've actually been seen once or twice with my wallet out of my pocket, shoving it at the screen, going, please take my money. And you can't figure out how to do business with people. So make it easy to do business with folks. Absolutely. And uh, with that, I want to say, hey, folks, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a Friday, Friday, Friday show. Uh, but for now, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with expert council member John Pugliano, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is